Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to First Baptist Hanford. My name is Kyle Ralph, and I'm actually the worship pastor here at FBH. Peter was just so gracious enough to allow for me to teach uh, from the stage and on this online service. But just to put all of your minds at ease, uh, this message was vetted by both Peter and by Jeff. And so if there is any heresy at all, it's on them, not on me. Because they've read through it. They've told me what their thoughts were. Like everything was fine. It's all on them at this point. So this morning what I wanted to do is actually take a little bit of a time to have you guys get to know me just a little bit more. Um, Of course, I love music. I love being able to do music here at at, at FBH. Um, But my degree was actually in cinema and media arts, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm a movie major. And part of that education that I got was um, we we first learned the history and the techniques of the entire industry, learning about the tools and the techniques and what they did uh, when the film industry first started and to how it progressed and how things changed over time um, as it got into more and more of the future. So uh, here's actually a little bit of a fun, fun film fact for you guys. When you're about to turn on a light, there's a word that you call out. And the word is striking or striking, watch your eyes. And what that does is it warns people like, hey, don't stare straight into the light because you're going to get blinded as we're turning it on right now. And what that originated from is that when the film industries first started using these supplemental lights, they had these giant glass kind of mirror dome things that they would use with a stick of magnesium uh, right in front of it. And so when the director would call for the lights uh, to start the scene, light it up, and the actors would get all into place, what the gaffers would do, or the guys that were in charge of the lights, they would actually strike the magnesium stick and ignite it, and that would last for about 15 minutes. So I believe it's similar, the reason why we learn the history of anything, any field of study that we have today, and the reason why we read the Old Testament of the Bible We read the Old Testament to learn the character of God and who he is throughout his time and his interactions with his people and his character. And then we look at the New Testament to see his answer for the problems that occurred in the Old Testament and to also learn how to live our lives like Christ. But what I want to do is is actually ask you guys a, a question. What would it be like if things never changed? What would life look like if things never changed? changed. For me in the film industry, what would it be like if movies were made the exact same way as they were when they were originally done? Well, what would happen is we'd have to turn this little attenuating arm on the camera that moves the film strip right in front of the shutter as it opens, bringing the light in exactly at 24 to 30 frames per second, depending on what you want to do. And let's say you mess that up. Well, shoot, now what you're going to have to do is get a whole nother reel of film. You're going to have to get all of the actors, all of the people on set again. You're going to have to get the right set again. And it's expensive. Nobody has time for that. Nobody wants to do that. Or how would medicine even be done if we never changed the way that we did medicine? Well, what would be happening is we'd literally be cutting people open and draining blood out for any medical ailment that there is. Or farming. How would farming be done if we never changed the way farming was done from the first time we have records of farming? 
Honestly, I don't even know how modern farming is done in our context, and so I have no idea, but my assumption is that it would be really difficult and not fun. It would be inefficient, impractical, and a waste of time. Why? Because we, we have the technology and we have the answers and the solutions to problems that were addressed long ago in our history that we can then read about and learn from. And even through the lens of Scripture, if the world still operated in the same way that it did in the time of the Old Testament, then we would not be able to even have a standing relationship with God. We would not have any kind of opportunity to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And as we've discussed in previous weeks, the people of Galatia were trying to do just that, have a knowledge of Jesus and what he had done, but then operate under some of the responsibilities of the Old Testament law. They held the parts of the responsibility of the law, but as we've read already and we'll see today, this will only lead you short of the glory of God. So as we read and study today, what we're going to be learning is more of the importance of knowing and having a foundation of the Old Testament while shedding the responsibility that we have from the Old Testament and then knowing what Christ has done in, in that place. Now part of, part of Galatians uh, that we're coming to right now, Paul reminds the people of Hagar and Sarah and how our freedom is similar to that of Isaac and Abraham and, and how we are then heirs of the kingdom of God. Uh, we continue into a description of what that freedom is and how to live in it. So let's read Galatians 5 starting at verse 1. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In reading this, it seems like there's an inherent desire that God has for us to actually be free. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This is something that God actually wants for us. But what does that freedom actually look like? Well, here's a, a definition that I found of freedom uh, in the context of our relationship with the Lord and this story. It says that freedom is the liberty to do or to omit things having no relationship to salvation. But true liberty is living as we should and not as we please. So I'm going to describe this uh, a little bit differently for us. Um, as we all know, there's mandates that are in order in our state of California uh, that ask of churches and other houses of worship to not have their gatherings indoors. And as we are also aware, there are some churches uh, within their own Christian freedom to do so who have decided to defy those mandates and start having their own gatherings within, in, inside of their, their, their doors in their own building. But there are also other churches like ours that within their own Christian freedom have chosen not to defy orders and instead are continuing with an outdoor service or strictly just online. You see, meeting inside or outside or online, any of that has, has no reason. It doesn't have any kind of topic of salvation. So whether a particular church has made the decision to meet indoors or not, it ultimately, or at least in my opinion, is not a hill to die on. Now, can our decision change? Of course it can. But know that we, and, and not just the pastoral staff, but the the board as well, have been and will continually pray, prayerfully consider where God wants us to go as far as where we meet. 
Now, the second half of this verse actually starts with the words, stand firm. And the translation of this is, is more of like a, a keep standing firm. And so looking at this, it evokes this thought that we are to have already been standing firm in the first place. And I think this is a lot more accurate, especially within the context of the rest of what we've been learning. There are people that have known the message of Christ. They've heard the stories and believed them even to be true. And Paul is now telling them not to forget it. Don't forget this. Remember the stories. Remember the message of the grace that God has for his children. And it's not just this act of standing firm. Paul then also call, has a call to action for them. And he says not to let them be subject to slavery. Now, the slavery, as we've covered last week, was really um, this idea of trying to make what we've happened happen for something that we want to happen as opposed to waiting on God's timing for us. And as we talked about last week, when Abraham slept with Hagar and had a child outside of the will of God, this child is not an heir of Christ. Ishmael is not part of God's plan for Abraham. He was born from Abraham's and Sarah's fleshly and sinful desires. And we'll come back to that in just a second. But in the meantime, let's revisit the passage starting then at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Mark my words. Essentially, y'all pay attention. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Okay, circumcision. Well, if you actually continue on after verse 6, um, it talks a little bit more and goes in a little bit more detail about circumcision. And so what I'm going to do is actually defer this and let J Pastor Jeff speak on this uh, next week. Good luck, Jeff. But what I can say is that this is an Old Testament command that God had for the people of Israel to set themselves apart from the rest of the world, that they would be completely different from the rest of the world. And the next thing that I'll say is that Paul's saying that if you let yourself be circumcised, then Christ will be of no value at all. That is a very, very strong sentence. And it honestly made me think a, a few times, a couple of times after I'd read it. But the reason Paul is mentioning it here is because as we talked about before, the people of Galatia were listening to the Judaizers. The guys that were saying, yeah, I mean, Jesus is cool and all, but uh, you actually have to obey the law in order to be more righteous in order to be in right standing with God. So these guys believed that they had to be circumcised in order to have a, a, a better position with God, in order to be more righteous, that this would make them more righteous. And as I was studying, I actually found this quote that says, if this is the purpose, you thinking that it's going to make you righteous before God, the, the act of circumcision, you think that it's going to make you acceptable before God, Paul said, Christ will profit you nothing if that is your mental attitude towards circumcision. So let this actually be a relief to you as it was also for me. This message is pointed at those people, the people who think that doing this will, will adding, you know, adding to the gospel and, and, and being circumcised is going to make you more right with God. But also to a certain extent, this is kind of understandable, at least for me it is, some of these people in Galatia were Jewish. Not everyone, but some of these folks were Jewish. They grew up in a culture where this is all that they knew. They'd studied the law. They knew the law. They tried to obey the law the best that they could. 
Their whole desire was to be righteous before God, and how could they have fellowship with God if that, if that wasn't true, if they weren't in right standing with him? But if this is truly what they believed, what this does is it changes it from Jesus plus nothing into works equals everything. But then again, these people heard the message of Christ. They accepted his grace and believed his message. The problem was is they had to completely renounce their old ways and fully live into the salvation that they had in Christ. You can't have both the law and grace. And as the book of James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. This is why the law was there in the first place. It was impossible for the people to obey it. And the reason it's impossible is because left to their own selfish desires, people, and even us today, in our own freedoms, we have the tendency to want to go back to our sinful and fleshly desires. Just as Abraham and Sarah uh, listened to their own earthly sinful desire to try to force God's promise into their lives, it's easy for us to try to force our hand and our desires outside and over what God actually wants for us. One of the ways that we try to take control of our lives is actually within the topic of relationships. Now, as a young person in the church, I can attest to this pressure of needing to be in a relationship and getting married, having kids. Like, when are you ever going to get me grandkids, my parents sometimes say. And even outside of the church, there's kids younger and younger who are wanting to get into relationships sooner and sooner because you know, everybody else has a relationship or this one influencer that they follow online, they have a relationship and so they want that relationship. But if they're having this relationship just for the sake of having one, then most likely that decision is not in line with the desires of God. Oftentimes you might see a girl, you know, starts dating this guy because, hey, he's cute. He has a job and uh, he... He's been to church, but it's, uh, it's been a long time, and you know, that's good enough. Or maybe uh, you have some guy who uh, dating this girl because, uh, well, she looked at him, and that's good enough, you know. But in either of these moments, what you might see is someone trying to force a relationship to happen instead of waiting for the right type of relationship with the right kind of person, and you're stuck into something that you ultimately don't want, you don't like it, and maybe you've already given too much of yourself to this other person, and now you're running back to God asking for the help and the healing that you ultimately need. In the same way that we try to take a good thing like a relationship and force it outside of God's desire for our lives, Paul is trying to communicate that to the people of Galatia. This is exactly what they're doing. They're forcing righteousness by trying to do more and more when that's not God's plan for them at all. And it's at this point where then Paul reminds the people where they get their ability to stand firm, who it is they get that power from, and what it is that makes them ultimately saved. So let's read on uh, the next two verses, starting at verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
Verse 5 answers that first question of where. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. It is the person of the Holy Spirit that, you know, within us, that makes us able to wait and to be patient. And what, it is, what, what are we even waiting for? Well, verse 5 also answers that. And it's the righteousness for which we hope. The righteousness is what we are heirs of. Every time you hear the phrase, heirs of Christ, know this, that when Jesus died for all of humanity, what that allowed is for people like you and me, imperfect, sinful people, to repent of their sins and make the decision to follow Christ for the rest of their lives and to be able to have a relationship and be in the presence of God in his spiritual glory. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In essence, we cannot be in the presence of God. There is nothing that we have done or can do to make us good enough to be in the presence of God. It took Jesus dying on the cross as the final sacrifice, taking on the sin of all men and us having faith in that work for us to even be considered righteous by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, it's our faith that makes us saved, not our works. Not doing well, not being good enough, but our faith. And this is what Paul is ultimately trying to get at. It doesn't, doesn't even matter if you're circumcised or not. That's, that's not even an issue to be thinking about. He says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Pay attention to that. That is the meaning. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what does that mean for us to have this faith expressing itself through love? How do, how do we do that? Let's say that in your faith, in the sufficiency of Christ, you keep track of how long it's been since the last time you look at, looked at pornography. Well, you know, now it's been about two weeks and you're feeling good. You're like, hey, I got this. I'm good enough. Hey, I haven't been doing this, so therefore God must love me more because I haven't looked at pornography in, in two whole weeks. That's not how it works. That takes a loving relationship with God and turns it into pride over what you've accomplished. Or hey, maybe you gave the homeless guy that's standing out on the curb outside of Walmart the last $2 in your wallet. Awesome, good for you. But what you end up doing is you go home fully intentioning to craft and to tailor this perfect post on Facebook to tell everybody the good that you've done and how you've really uh, blessed somebody else's life. Hashtag blessed. This situation is now turned from trying to lovingly care for a homeless person and makes it all about you, even through the veil of your own faith. You should not be motivated to do good things just to feel better about yourself, or even to just feel closer to God. The good things that you do should be motivated by the Spirit in you, by the love that God has now given to you. So here's, here's my challenge for you guys this week. Spend time every morning praying, 
asking God for where you can then show love to somebody that's around you. And you don't even have to take a whole lot of time. Simply pray something like this. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Help my motivations to be out of a love for you. Show me today who I can then share that love with. Students or or kids, you're at home all the time, literally all the time. Figure out a way to then bless your family, bless your parents. Maybe uh, do the dishes or actually clean up your room before they even ask. Or maybe there's a room somewhere else in your house that you know needs to get cleaned up. So go and clean that room without your parents even asking. Figure out a way. Ask God to show you where you can bless and love your family. Adults, maybe you know a coworker who's having a rough day, a rough week, and you just have an opportunity to be able to buy them lunch. Spend that time with them. And who knows, maybe God will use that opportunity and that time for you to then share your faith with that person. It could even maybe be as simple as paying for the coffee and the person, uh, for the person behind you in the line at Starbucks. Something, anything. But I'm going to leave you with this. Our salvation and our confidence is in the fact, the fact that what Jesus did on the cross accomplished so much more than the law ever could. And it is this faith that we have expressing itself through the love that we show and give that actually matters to God. Not the law, not what you've done to make yourself righteous, but your faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus and what his death actually meant for us. Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would search my heart, that you would search the hearts of everyone listening today to show us ways that we can love the people that are around us, to show us ways that we can then help and be an extension of your love and your your grace and your goodness because of our faith in you. And God, maybe there's somebody today who doesn't have that relationship with you, who doesn't know of that love that you have for your children and is learning and wanting that. So God, I ask um, that you would, you would open their hearts, that you would, you would bless them. And if that is you, that you would pray along with me as we do after every service, we pray the ABCs. That A, God, I admit that I am a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that I have no ability to be able to have a relationship with you outside of the death of Jesus. God, and I, B, I believe that it is that death of Jesus that makes me righteous. I believe that it is because of Jesus that I'm able to have this relationship with you. And see, I choose to follow you, God. I, I, I truly choose to follow you for the rest of my life and I repent of my sins that I've done. God, show me your love. Show me who you are. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.